a heads up, there's going to be some cursing in this episode. I left it unbleeped because sometimes people be cussing. That's just how they talk. Can you tell me a joke? Oh, man, can I tell you a joke? I guess maybe a quick one would be something that happened to me recently. I uh, was feeling depressed because I got on Instagram and someone that I was in a serious relationship with in college had gotten married. Uh, so I did the mature thing and liked all of the photos of the honeymoon at 2 a.m. Uh, because I was like, you know, it hit me hard because I was like, wow, that could have been me. Uh, and then I woke up today and she had liked a bunch of my pictures back on Instagram. And I was like, yo, maybe that could still be me. <laughs> I think I'm going to go fuck up a honeymoon after this interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Uh, but I, I like, I feel like I always kind of wilt a little bit when someone asks me straight up to tell them a joke because I am very much like a story. Like I, for better or worse, I love to tell a story. Um, and that tends to be how I, how I joke on stage. Uh, so I have friends who are like one-liner comics and, or even just quicker, wittier comics than I am. If you ask them to tell you a joke, they can just boom, hit you with set up and punchline. Whereas I'm kind of like, okay, you want to hear a joke? Do you have? One to four minutes. <laughs> this is Ash Diggs, and he's funny. So funny, in fact, that one of his jobs is to make people laugh. He's a stand-up comedian who grew up in the South, moved to Queens, New York in 2021, but hails from my home state, Vermont, a place we both agree can be a little funny too sometimes. The South, like everybody there knows their place, you know, and Gosh, so yeah. that's like scary, but it's also relieving because you know where your safe place is too. That's in so Vermont, true. you're just like all out in the open, just feeling normal, <laughs> having a, a day at the co-op, and then one day, bam, <laughs> N-word yeah. in the in the in the nutritional yeast section. And you're like, what? <laughs> it's nine a.m. on a Tuesday. <laughs> People like Ash are kind of my entire inspiration for starting this show. Because yes, he's black. Yes, he's interesting. But he's also somehow just so unapologetically human first. That vulnerability I'm always searching for. Which I gotta say, when it comes to the comedy I've witnessed, that's pretty rare. I mean, comedians put a lot of stuff out there for laughs, but it's not necessarily their stuff, their truths, or their explicit hardships. I mean, the whole concept behind crowd work, when a comedian asks questions of the crowd and then picks on whatever their answer is, is to call out everyone else's stuff. But Ash offers his stuff up willingly. Night after night on stage, he shows us his pain candidly. And as a now fan of his work, I gotta say, he seems to do it with such ease. So I'm glad we sat down for today's episode so I could take a peek behind the Ash Diggs curtain. He's the first to say that his road to the stage hasn't really been that funny or easy. Yeah, um, I struggle very heavily with depression um, and bipolar disorder. Um, I have been dealing with that for a couple of years now. Since I sat down with Ash to talk about his relationship with tragedy and humor, he's been on my mind a lot. I don't think I've ever met someone who understands their demons so well. He doesn't deny them or explain them away. He owns them leashes them and takes them out for a walk on stage from time to time, all for the sake of a laugh. All right, y'all, so here's what happens. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been great lately. 
uh, and I'm here to talk to you about it. Uh, basically, here's, here's my deal. I'm a little different right now. You can probably tell what's different about me. Uh, I'm not on my meds. <laughs> Make some noise. We're going absolutely yeah! We're going crazy. To be clear, Ash's demons have names. They are depression, addiction, self-harm, and thoughts of suicide. And Ash and I will dig into all of these in our conversation today. So take good care while listening and check out our credits at the end of the episode for some information that may be helpful if, like Ash, you are struggling with any of these same demons. Because, as we well know, when it comes to these struggles, Ash is not alone. Mark Marin, Craig Ferguson, Chris Farley, Faquan Johnson, John Mullaney, Matthew Perry. These are just a handful of comedians who have wrestled with addiction and depression. In fact, mental health issues and substance misuse is not uncommon in the world of comedy, which has a reputation of making famous, brilliant minds who are also struggling deeply, which is getting talked about more and more. People has confirmed that former Saturday Night Live writer John Mulaney has checked into rehab, seeking treatment after relapsing following a decades-long battle with addiction. The comedian has been... My prescriptions. Not the illegal pills I bought on the street. The official prescriptions with my name on them. And they took them from me simply because I had no business being prescribed them in the first place. But sometimes... These struggles are silent. Brody Stevens, Freddie Prinz, Ray Cameron, Michael Roof, Mickey Dubois, Robin Williams. These comedians lost their lives in this battle. So, we really got to ask ourselves what's so funny? This is Homegoings. I'm Myra Flynn. Today on the show, we'll talk with stand-up comedian Ash Diggs about the ugly side of art and how the container art is displayed on, the stage, can be both an enabler. I think that humor enabled me in a lot of ways because it stopped people from realizing how serious uh, I think some of my shit was. And a healer. I tend to overshare, but there was a long time when I didn't share anything uh, and it almost killed me. This is Homegoings. Welcome home. Uh, I am biracial. I know I've said it like three times already. Thank you for noticing. Uh, <laughs> this is great light for it. In about a hundred years, this is what everyone's going to look like, you know, so if you have any white children in your life, mm, cherish them. <laughs> They're on their way out. You know? I am unable to separate my blackness from my comedy. Like, it's because it's such a core, you know, the what's the old cliched saying, like, write what you know. Like, I can only write about what my experiences have been, and I've I've 
been black, half black my entire life. And it's always been present. I've always known it. Bernie Mac, we had a Kings of Comedy DVD that I used to just run into the ground. And we had Queens of Comedy when that came out in the early 2000s too. And I just ran those into the ground. Some of my neighbors came. Hey, y'all. Hey. But I just said, I got to move out. I got to move out to locate the community. I know some of them don't like me, but I don't give a fuck. I live there because I fucking care. And I go there and I represent. I represent for my black people. I represent. I play my rap music and shit to three and four o'clock in the morning. And I like that hardcore rap shit. And so my foundation of how to do comedy, you know, all those comics, all their material, or a, a significant portion of their material is, is built around their identity, being black in America, being black, doing anything situationally. Um, and so when I started writing jokes, trying to do comedy, um, that was very present in my mind. But at the same time, I think that I got, I was lucky in that my intro, my formal introduction to comedy was in college. I took a class called Women in Stand-Up Comedy, and it was just a chronicling of uh, stand-up comedy in America. And we talked a lot about like Mons Mabley, like in those early, early, like that coming out of the minstrel stuff and like, how do, how do you do comedy that isn't just, you know, tap dancing for the white man? Like, just how do you get away from that when that's all for a long time, that was the only way you could get on stage. Um, and I think you have to be conscious of that. And in, in my opinion, I think when I see comics who do, things that I would consider hacky, like race material, that oftentimes for me is like, oh, like that joke isn't, that joke is, you wrote that joke for a white person. Like that doesn't feel like you are saying anything about your experience, the black experience, et cetera. Um, and I think you have to be really conscious of it. I think it's really easy to get on stage and become um, a, a caricature of yourself. And I think that's I think that's super unfair that that black comedians have to be so cognizant. It feels like another obstacle. Like I would love to just, um, you, you know, there's a lot of comedians who are very famous right now for like doing crowd work and stuff like that. And they can just get up there and ask people like, what's your job? What's this? What's that? And there's like it can feel and, you know, there are people who are amazing in crowd work, but it can feel like there's very little thought put into it. Whereas pretty much every black comedian I know are some of the smartest comics I know as well because they have to work harder to to be perceived as as good as mediocre white people, but also to not just slip into, you know, tap dancing, minstrelry, stuff like that. You have to, it's 2023, but you still have to be aware of it. I've also kind of learned over the years through some of my comedic friends that they are pretty depressed that, you know, behind this amazing ability to perform and make other people laugh, there's a lot of internal crying going on. How's your mental health? Yeah, um, I struggle very heavily with depression um, and bipolar disorder. Um, I have been dealing with that for a couple of years now. I, uh, I did not want to stop taking my meds. Uh, I, I stopped cold turkey. You might be thinking, you're supposed to wean. You're supposed to wean. Let me tell you what, just move somewhere. You'll stop your meds cold turkey. The US healthcare system will do it for you. 
try to find a new therapist, a new doctor. U.S. healthcare system will wrap its arms around you and say, hey, baby, you don't need all those pills. Why are you acting crazy, girly pop? You know what you want to do? You want to be on another wait list. <laughs> kind of starting in college for me, um, around my, f uh, really my freshman year, um, I started realizing that I was, that something was going on. I felt sad. I felt different. I felt like I was having a hard time. Um, but at the same time, I was making a lot of friends. I was considered someone, pe people laughed when I was around and I enjoyed making people laugh. Um, and so it's, but then as soon as I was by myself, I just was like this whole, I felt like I was this whole other person. And I was so, so deeply sad. Um, and that's, I, you know, for just don't mind me going there. Um, when I was in college, I attempted suicide twice. It was like, I, I truly felt like two different people. And then as soon as I'd be alone, I, that's, I started drinking, uh, when I was in college, you know, just kind of party culture and stuff like that. But then realized like, oh, I don't have to go to a party to drink. I can just drink by myself. college um, started with self-harm in a way that was, you know, I didn't jump to, I had suicidal ideation, but I didn't jump to it. It kind of started as um, just, you know, that trigger warning for a self-harm discussion, but, you know, I was just kind of using a razor to cut on my arm in a way that felt like self-punishment. Like I was like, I'm hurting people around me. I'm drinking too much. I'm not making my parents proud. I, you know, finding reasons to be like, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough, realizing in hindsight that was depression, <laughs> but, you know, not knowing at the time. And then, you know, you cut your arm a little bit. And for me, it was almost like this really twisted, fucked up version of, of mindfulness where it's like, I'm actively doing something to distract myself from a harmful thought. But for me, it was just another, instead of like going to take a walk or going to the gym, it was cutting myself to feel like focus on that pain, see that, you know, it's both, it's a feeling and it's visual, right? Like you see the blood, suddenly that's all you can think about. And then you feel the pain, suddenly that's all you can think about. Okay, I'm in pain, I'm in physical pain right now, but I'm not sad for this, for, for this moment, I'm not sad. One thing that's been difficult for me personally to, to juggle is that, in my opinion, some of my best material has been born out of that. Not saying, I think there's this, um, this stereotype or this idea that like, of like the tortured com comedian, right? And like, I, I think that's not necessarily the case. I don't think you're a better comedian if you're depressed. Um, because I know for me, when I was depressed, like I wasn't writing, I wasn't getting up doing shows. Um, but I do think that it can make you a really good comedian if you are able to take a step back and mind those feelings. If you can find fun, funny moments in 
in that darkness, you can kind of, it for me at least, reclaim some power, reclaim some of your time. It doesn't feel so wasted if you're like, if you can take something away from it and bring it to people. And like, I've, I've been lucky enough uh, to be in a position where I've done shows where people have come up to me afterwards and been like, I really appreciated hearing that, like that, like, I feel that way too. Um, and I think that's the really powerful, that's the thing that can make it feel like you want to keep going is if you can be like, okay, well maybe, maybe me being open about this in such a public way on stage, making fun of it, maybe that's the nudge someone needed to, to open up to someone that they've, you know, not been talking to or to open up to anybody or to take that step to maybe go and take care of themselves. I tend to overshare and I'm, I'm glad that's something that I've developed. Like sometimes it's too much too soon, but there was a long time when I didn't share anything uh, and it, it almost, almost killed, killed me. me. How have you been breaking your own heart? Um, yeah historically in order for the material to be good. Yeah. I mean, I think sabotaging relationships, uh, I just did it, <laughs> um, a couple months ago. Um, and the person, uh, she, she told me, she was like, you, you don't want to break up with me. You're, this is your cycle. Like I've seen it happen time and time again. You are incredibly depressed right now. You, you're turning in, you're like caving in on yourself and you're pushing everyone away you're gonna. You're trying to break up with me right now, and as soon as you do it, you're gonna know. It was, you're gonna wish you hadn't, because this is what you do. You push everyone away, and then you're alone. Like I'm trying to be here for you. Don't do that. And then I still did it, um, and that's been a pattern, uh, pretty much as long as I can remember. In in friendships, I, with friendships and romantic relationships, um, I keep I keep fucking them up, and I keep regretting it. And it's gotten to the point I'm almost 30 years old. It's really, it, at this point, it's just very clear that this is a cycle. Uh, the, 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 the most important I statement in this story is that I, my actions hurt somebody, one of the only people I've ever really loved. And I have to take responsibility for that. And it's, it's hard continuing on through life knowing that what I did, that, that I ended it. And that it's, it's, it's never going to be the same. And... I've, it's, I've gotten to a point where it's been long enough, I've been grieving long enough that a, a page has tur turned and I've gotten to take a step back and appreciate some of the good things, some of the gifts that I got from this relationship, like a couple Christmases ago. Probably the, the healthiest I've ever been uh, was maybe the like the last two, year and a half or two years I was in Vermont uh, with this really wonderful therapist. Um, and I thought that I had broken, I thought that I had, broken that cycle. I'd become aware of it. I had fixed things that I'd broken in the past and I really, and it was a lot of work and I felt like I did. I felt like I did so much work. I felt like I made changes. I felt like I wasn't just saying I was a different person. I did feel like I was a different person. And then I moved and I had a really, really hard time getting a therapist in New York. But I was like, this is okay. I've got this foundation. I've made these changes. Like, 
I I'm I can take care of myself until I find this therapist, until I find the next therapist. And then weeks turned into months and I started slipping and I'm still on these wait lists and I'm not getting to therapists and I'm drinking a little bit more that I, you know, I had cut my drinking down so much. I'm drinking a little bit more. Oh, like I'm doing drugs a little bit when when they're at parties, you know, I'm doing a little coke or I'm taking a pill here, but oh, only only it's at a party, you know, it's fine. I'm doing it with other people. Um, and it just I just started chipping away at all the progress I had made until suddenly, you know, a few like months ago, I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, my God, I'm drinking all the time and fully back to I'm high all the time. Like it just happened again. I used to do a lot of cocaine and Percocet, so if you had gotten to this point of the set and did not know that I was half white, now you do. <laughs> and with the Percocet, I really, I was really in a bad spot with it. I was, I was, I wasn't able to stop. I wasn't able to stop. Uh, I, I feel like I got dealt a bad hand. I had, three I had multiple shoulder surgeries, and every time I had a shoulder surgery, they were prescribing me Percocet. And I fucking loved the Percocet, you know, like I had multiple refills, even though, you know, I, my recovery time was like three to six months. They were like, you only need these intense painkillers for like two weeks, but they would give me 120 pills with however many refills. And they're saying, take one a day. Um, and then suddenly I've got all these refills. I'm recovered from my surgery. Uh, but now I have all these pills and I'm in college and it's like, wow, I have this drug I can take. Um, that makes me feel awesome, incredible. I was pretty depressed this summer. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot though. The biggest thing I learned this summer when I was depressed was if you are specific enough in the special instructions, Domino's will deliver a pizza to a bedside window. <laughs> they don't love it. In fact, some of them hate it. But a tip is a tip and I'm bedridden with the deep darkies. <laughs> Yeah, I would take all these pills and I would feel like I was like at max charisma, max funniness, max all these things. But in reality, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. I was sick every morning. I was missing classes. I wasn't being a good boyfriend. I wasn't being a good friend. But then you get high and it's like, and, and you know, you're hyper aware of all those things the next morning. So then you're just like, well, it's time to get high again because I feel like a rock star when I'm high. For a long time, it was... I had a hard time describing myself as someone who was addicted to any substances because in my mind, addiction was, you know, like the stereotypes you see on TV of someone like strung out on a street corner of like, or like an alcoholic who like, you know, is getting the shakes if they don't have a drink people. you know, I went to, I was lucky enough to go to like a, a good school, a well-to-do whites like college and like, you know, everyone's doing drugs. Like no one, like no one's calling themselves addicts. You're just, maybe that guy parties a little too much, you know? So it was like the language was never really there to call it addiction. Um, and even people close to me would be like, no, I, you know, I, you're not addicted. You just, you know, you're just, you're part of, you're, you're just doing too much. You just need to stop, you know? And that, that was always the, and, th and that made it hard for me to talk to people about it because it was like, 
I almost felt sometimes that people didn't believe me when I, when I told them like, well, if I could stop, I would just stop. And, but I, but I can't. At a certain point in college, I looked up this uh, process where basically you could take your pills, you could like distill them and you could remove the acetaminophen from them. So you could just take like the straight uh, opiate or whatever, like, you know, whichever pill you were taking, you could just remove all the acetaminophen, get all the filler out essentially. Um, And I was doing it in my kitchen in my dorm and joking about it with my friends like oh we're getting like i'm getting fucked up tonight and like and it was a joke you know like it was like oh that's crazy like this it's like a science experience you know we're we're making light of it but at the end of the day i was distilling pills down so that i could carry around a little ziploc bag of like pure opiate to like just take keep themselves throughout the day just to not just to escape this depression that had me ready to die at any moment. I think that humor enabled me in a lot of ways because it stopped people from realizing how serious uh, I think some of my shit was. I got to a point where I was pretty functional. I wasn't always functional, but I got to a point where I was very functional. And then I started doing comedy. And then in comedy, it's like, well, everyone's doing drugs. Everyone's drinking too much. Um, and it, I just kept finding myself being enabled. But I was, put, I was, you know, it's not anyone else's fault. I was seeking out spaces where I would be enabled. I was putting myself in a position to be enabled. Um, and I knew I was doing too much, but at the same time, I was so depressed that it was just such, I mean, I, I still struggle with it today, but cause I, you know, I, I have been off the pills for a while, but I still have done Coke from time to time, especially, you know, I'm in New York city, it's everywhere. And it is unfortunate. I, I know an unfortunate truth about me is that, and something I'm going to have to fight for the rest of my life is like, God, I love drugs. <laughs> like I just, I feel so, I think my baseline, at least for the last like six years, has been such a deep level of depression that the high, the ecstasy, the escape of drugs and drinking, but drugs for sure to a much more extent, specifically like Coke and pills, the way it just disconnects me from my reality is just this constant appealing thing to me. At the same time, every time I do it, I'm paying for it. I'm losing, I'm fucking up relationships. You know, like I'm just having a rough week, a rough week that turned into two and a half months of being drunk or high at at all points. And unfortunately getting to a point where a thing that friends will say to me is like, I'm like, oh, like if we were all out drinking, I'm like, oh yeah, I I was blackout. Like, I don't remember that at all. And they'd be like, oh my, like a thing that I've heard for years is you're really good at being blackout drunk. I didn't know you were that drunk. gotten really good at it and I think that I have kind of created my own problems in itself that when I tell people how much I'm struggling with substances 
how much I have struggled in the past, they're just like, what, what is, what are you even talking about? Like, that's a different person. Like, no, you weren't, you weren't struggling like that. Like we were going to apple orchards in Vermont, like two years ago, you weren't drunk then. And I was like, no, I, I might've been, <laughs> you know, like. I call the voices in my head, the boys. <laughs> So now, when I talk about my mental health issues, instead of sounding pretty sick, boy, I sound pretty sick. <laughs> like, if you asked me what I was doing later, I couldn't say fending off the voices. That would upset me, right? But if you ask me what I'm doing later, and I'm like, boys night, <laughs> every fucking night, you'd be like, dang, that guy's cool as shit. Do you want to come out later, Ash? No, nah, dog, nah, no, nah, I'm gonna hang in the house with the fellas. <laughs> I'm gonna be in my room all weekend, but don't worry, I will not be alone. <laughs> it's gonna be something I struggle with forever, I think. Or at least, you know, it'll get, as I continue to do the work on it, which I feel like I am back in a place the last like month or two, I've been in a really good place of doing that work, getting back to the things that make me feel healthy, make me feel good. But just realizing how quickly I can slip back into it uh, has made it really clear to me like, oh, this is something I'm gonna have to be really intentional about working on forever. And like that also really, that also depresses me. Um, but at the same time, I do have this outlet of stand-up, right? Like, you know, it's essentially journaling. I'm writing it all out. I'm sharing it with people. In some ways, that's mending for me the uh, the notion of people being like, I don't even know who this guy is that you're talking about that was doing all these drugs and drinking so much. If I can bring it on stage, and I'm, I'm trying to take down the walls between the multiple versions of me that I think that I've created. Um, and so I, I think that's really, that that's a big role that performing and, and comedy plays for me in, in healing. So so yes or no, us coming to see your show is us witnessing you healing. Yeah, I, I think so. The show is the show is called Unexpectedly Human. Um, and that is a punchline for a really dumb joke that I have. Uh, but it in a way I was I was trying to figure out names for the show. And I realized, so, so much of the show is like, as I mentioned earlier, it's stories. It's very personal. It's, it's not a lot of, uh, you know, just straight jokes. It's a lot of stories. Um, and I realized that kind of at the heart of it, the, the thing I'm often trying to get at on stage is just like, I'm trying to be as vulnerable as possible. I, I'm not trying, like, I, I don't think I'm the funniest person that's ever done stand-up. I know that I'm not. I think I'm pretty good at it so far. And I think that my, you know, the, my fledgling career, like, I feel like I'm getting better every year. I'm getting more opportunities every year. Um, but I've realized since I've been in New York that the thing that really brings me joy in comedy, the thing that made it my passion, isn't the pursuit of, can I get this show? How do I get to this festival, this side or the other? It's, I'm, I'm at my happiest. I'm at my most fulfilled doing comedy when I am just trying to turn myself inside out and kind of reach out my hand to the audience, to friends, to strangers, and just be like, 
I, I'm, I've been so alone. I feel like I'm constantly so alone uh, because I keep so much of myself hidden from the people who have loved me the most, from people who have been the closest to me. And I, I don't yet know how to bridge those gaps in my interpersonal relationships. I've lost relationships because of it, because I've kept myself shut off coming on stage and reaching out my hand and asking for someone to reach back out to me is, is me trying, trying to keep, to keep myself, myself here. here. We have talked a lot about a lot of heavy shit from being black in America to having to kind of reroute and change the legacy of our ancestors as entertainers to being addicts to depression and suicide. So what's so funny? <laughs> um, I mean, I think the thing that's funny is that none of this matters at all in the grand scheme of the universe. <laughs> like, I, I think that that's like the, the grand joke of it all is just that like, we are so in, infinitely tiny and yet somehow, some way, we have these emotions, we have these feelings, we have these struggles that are so monumental while still being in the grand scheme of the universe so tiny and I just think that's, I, it's so ridiculous. Like it just, it's like, why? Why earth? Why us? Why am I alive? Like, it's just, you can sit here and run yourself into the ground asking all these questions when you realize how small you are. And then you sit down and you, you know, you talk to Myra Flynn, you make friends, you do things like this. And it's like, how did we even get, why are we here? How did this even happen? You, you can go crazy thinking about it. And I just think it's hilarious to imagine some fifth dimensional beings on some other plane being like, Oh my God, like, yo, that dude just got addicted to pills. That's crazy. We don't know anything about anything, uh, but at the same time, we have somehow developed this empathy, this care for, for fellow humans. And I think that's so beautiful. I think it's so wonderful. I think my favorite thing about comedy is the connection that you build. And yet the joke of it to me at the end of the day is that also none of it fucking matters. So if nothing matters, say whatever you want to say, joke, whatever you want to joke about for, for the most part, you know, be, be careful with that. Uh, but also, and just like fucking be nice. Like if nothing matters, like doesn't hurt you to be nice. Doesn't hurt you to love someone. Doesn't hurt you to listen to someone being black in America fucking sucks. Uh, a lot of the time being black is awesome. Being black in America can fucking suck so much. It can suck a lot in Vermont somewhere that claims to be so progressive, so wonderful, still has so much fucking work to do. Um, and yet, and yet there's comedy, there's laughs, there's, like we said at the beginning, sometimes things can be so intense, so unknowable, so mysterious, so painful, so complicated that you bypass the tears, you bypass the pain. And sometimes you just laugh. You don't know, you don't know what's so funny. All you just know what's funny is that you're fucking here and you're taking another breath and it's like, wow, all right, some someone's playing a joke. I, I might, might as well, well be in on it. it. Ash digs. And before we transition into Ash's deep listen, I have to say, since our conversation two months ago, 
I've been wondering how he's been doing. I've seen on social media that he's performed some more live shows, which Ash says are as much of an addiction for him as drugs. You gotta wonder, did he keep the show and kick the drugs? Does he have to stop the shows to kick the drugs? What's next? What's staying and what's gotta go? So I texted Ash the same question as we titled episode three of Homegoings. I said, bro, how are you doing? Ash wrote back and quote, I definitely am not currently sober, so it'd be disingenuous to say that. However, I've got a pretty sound grasp on my substance intake these days. I haven't taken any drugs harder than marijuana since May. I had a very rough patch with my drinking, really from fall of last year throughout the past summer, but recently have been able to get a handle on that as well. In the last month, I've been able to return to no drinking or weed Monday through Thursday, then moderation on the weekends, Moderation for me being not blacking out every time I drink and no drinking alone. In terms of formal help, my insurance changed, so I had to switch therapists again, so I'm still working through the red tape of that process. But my friends that I'm so lucky to have have been providing incredible support. I'd say in this moment, I'm actually doing okay right about now. Well, Ash, doing okay right about now seems like the best any of us can do. So thank you. And thank you for trusting us with your story. As it goes in a traditional homegoing, tragedy and joy can and maybe should occupy the same space. Otherwise, where do we find our center? Or our humor? This is Ash Diggs performing Unexpectedly Human, a live set staged at the Radio Bean in Burlington, Vermont, that you've been hearing throughout this episode. This deep listen is the final three minutes. I live in New York now. The first time I tried to move to New York a couple years ago, it didn't work out. I was too broke. I was too poor. When I moved back recently, I made sure to check out all my old haunts. I'm my favorite grocery store where the owner had nicknamed me Aladdin uh, because I was brown, constantly trying to steal food and wishing aloud that my life was different. It was a good time, and like when when you're moving, when you're moving back somewhere, you know it's 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 emotional to move somewhere. And when I was leaving Burlington, while I was packing up all my stuff, I found a suicide note that I'd written in 2019, and it was hard. It it hit it, it it you know when you, that just pops up, it really it can wreck everything. Uh, I I've attempted suicide twice in my life, uh, once for sure. One time it was a little murky. Uh, basically, uh, when I was 23. My friends found me uh, like outside their house on driveway below their third floor window with a busted ankle and busted hip. And basically one of two things happened. I either tried to kill myself or I tried to leave the party in the dopest way possible. <laughs> Y'all still using stairs? <sighs> no, okay. So uh, I read this note. It washed over me and the, I took it in and I absorbed it. And the first thought I had afterwards was, wow, Ash, you have truly grown as a writer since then. Yikes, trash note, bad note. Thank God those were not my last words, right? The things I was feeling were real, but I just presented them in the most annoying way possible, kind of like Sam Levinson and whatever he's working out, writing before you. I'm so glad those, those weren't my last words. People would have been at my funeral going up to my parents like, did he leave a note? And they'd be like, yeah. <laughs> but it's wordy. <laughs> he wrote it in second person, which feels crazy. 
And what we'll say is, uh, 2023, I don't know exactly where I'm at now, right? I, um, I, I don't know exactly where I'm at. To paraphrase a song that I love, I, I'm ill right now, and I'm not dead, and I, I don't know which one I prefer, but I, I just, I'm glad I'm here with you all tonight. I'm glad you're all here, and if you're struggling, I hope you're taking care of yourself in whatever ways you can, and if there's anything that I can do for you, please always reach out to me, and I wish I could offer you more than just platitudes or well wishes, but I'm not out of the woods yet myself, uh, but I, I promise to try to fake it till I make it, right? And uh, I, I'm trying to convince myself that everything will be okay in the end, and that if things are not okay, then it's not the end. Uh, thank you all for being here tonight. My name is Ash Diggs. Thank you so much for listening to Homegoings, a righteous space for art and race. It's been a pleasure being here with you. Special thanks to Radio Beam in Burlington, Vermont for the recording of Ash's live set, Unexpectedly Human. You can catch some video of his set, shot and edited by Brian Delabruer on his YouTube channel, November 15th. And as per usual, thanks to Elodie Reed who is the graphic artist behind all of our Homegoings artist portraits. Ash is front and center on this one, so be sure to check him out at homegoings.co. And if you are struggling with any of the stuff we talked about in today's episode, you do not have to navigate it alone. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or the National Substance Abuse Hotline, available 24 hours at 1-800-662-4357. This episode was mixed, scored, and reported by me, Myra Flynn. I also composed the theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions and Jay Green. Brittany Patterson edits the show, and James Stewart and Elodie Reed contribute to so many things on the back end of making this thing come to life. And a final note here to say that though we are on episode nine of the podcast, woo, Homegoings is still relatively new, and we are working to spread the word to get this soulful storytelling out there. So those who need some, get some. If you like what you've been hearing, reach out and tell somebody, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell your mama, heck, tell a stranger. When it comes to getting it out there, sharing is caring, and nobody can do that better than you. Subscribing to the show is free, and anyone can do so wherever they get their podcasts or at homegoings.co. While you're there, you can sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter and give us a follow on Instagram at wearehomegoings. Due to the holidays, see you in three weeks this time for another episode of Homegoings. As always, you are welcome here.
information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.